So congratulations on having made it through this weather. And for many of you, for your first retreat, this is as uh, warm as it gets in this part of California today. It's it. It doesn't get any hotter. <laughs> and so I want to just uh, congratulate. Some, for some of you, it wasn't that big a deal, but for some of you, it was, I know. And just to keep with the persistence and the continuity, it's significant. I just want to, in a way, bow to you. It's, um, having the hottest weather of the total year for a first retreat, the first full day, is not optimal conditions. So, anyway, thank you. So this evening I want to talk about uh, wise speech in the context of the path to liberation. To look at, in a beginning way really, the, the practice of wise speech and link it to the transformation of the mind and heart that we're involved with. And to begin with, I want to invite us right now as we sit to engage in a kind of wise speech practice, namely wise listening. But I actually want to do more than just uh, mention that. I want to say a little bit about what that might mean to have your listening be a kind of practice. Because a lot of times in daily life, we're listening to others. How can we make that a practice? One very fundamental principle, which we'll explore in more depth tomorrow, is to gradually learn how to connect paying attention outwardly with paying attention inwardly. To be able to attend inwardly in the midst of interaction, in the midst of speaking. This is challenging to be able to do that. It takes practice for most of us. But I find it to be one of the keys for making wise speech come alive. We have to, in some ways, be able to know what's happening internally when, when we're in the middle of action. And yet in this culture, by and large, it seems like most of our attention goes outward. You know, if you're at a meeting or at work, it's like everything goes outward. And then when we meditate, kind of everything goes inward, <laughs> you know? and the balance that I think is required of mature, wise speech is to have both happening at the same time. It goes against a lot of our conditioning. It's not easy. But I want to invite us to start exploring that right now in a very simple way. As you listen to my words, keep some inner awareness. That could mean a few different things. It could mean simply to be aware of one's body a little bit. Try to notice if you have thoughts and reactions occurring as I'm speaking. Keep, a, keep in other words, there's no 
performance demand on you for the next hour. And so you, we can take uh, this evening, this next hour, just as we, I think we can take the whole retreat as a kind of laboratory to try some things that might feel a little bit um, risky in daily life. I think sometimes we're, you know, I know for myself, sometimes I, w- I think I need to put all my attention outwardly because something might happen, you know. And so it, it's a little risky actually to keep inward because we're actually put, not putting all of our attention out to look out for bad things arriving or good things that are possible, if you know what I mean. So just to might be aware of your body, monitor a little bit any responses or reactions or thoughts. might just be to be aware of the contact with the cushion or to feel your hand on your knees. That's a great start just to be able to cultivate that. And we'll really be, for the week, uh, continuing that kind of training. And hopefully in a way that can, can develop that capacity in a way that, you, that you'll be able to bring out into daily life. So two thoughts about wise speech in relationship to the, the larger project of liberation And I want to talk then about how wise speech fits in and then go on to talk about the importance of wise speech generally and some of the guidelines, some of the beginning guidelines for wise speech. And that'll be my talk. I'd like, if I can, to leave a little bit of time for discussion at the end. So it's kind of, I've always found it really interesting that when the Buddha developed the map of how we develop, called the Eightfold Path, that speaking was part of it. Some of you and myself thought, oh oh my gosh, they're mostly just in silence, those monks or nuns, aren't they? If you had to list eight key factors to develop, why would you list speech? Isn't that secondary? And yet it's there. One of the factors of the Eightfold Path is speech. Why is that so important for especially a bunch of um, monks or nuns wandering in the forest? Who are they talking to? <laughs> you know. And, but, when you, but when you actually read the text, you actually find that they're way more talkative than you might have thought. And that actually, they're not, most of the year, they're not doing something like a silent retreat. They're meditating a lot, they're cultivating mindfulness a lot, but they're basically in interaction with people quite a bit. They're always getting invited for dinner. (laughs) A lot of dinner parties. You gotta have wise speech for dinner parties. (laughs) And they're giving guidance to people. They're actually quite involved with uh, people in the community. And even now, if you would go to Thailand, or Burma, there'd be a close relationship between monasteries and monks or nuns. And so it's there. And the second important point I wanted to make was that wise speech is not presented to us in isolation. It's not presented as just a set of ways to speak better. It's actually part and parcel 
of this profound transformative practice, profound transformative process that leads to freedom. Developing skillful speech, wise speech, is part of a process that one that really has the intention to bring us to freedom, to transform suffering. And so in the context of the uh, Eightfold Path, wise speech is one of the eight factors, but it's very integrally linked to the other factors on the path. And so we can, as we explore wise speech, we can see how it's connected to the main categories of the path or the main forms of training that we do when we move towards greater freedom. The Eightfold Path is sometimes divided into three areas. One is the area of ethics or coming to live a life of integrity. A second is developing in wisdom. And a third is developing in meditation, including mindfulness. And although wise speech fits under the first category of ethics, I think that it's very much linked with the other ethical guidelines and also with the development of meditation and wisdom. So it's not isolated. It's not as if we develop these techniques or principles of speech in isolation, but that they have to be connected with awareness, with mindfulness, and with wisdom. So just to mention the other factors of the Eightfold Path, the ethical dimension is explicated in terms of three factors, right livelihood, right action, which pretty much means the ethical guidelines that we took with Richard uh, last night. Do you know that was only 24 hours ago that we started? <laughs> Doesn't it seem like it's been like a few days? Anyone who thinks it's been a few days? Yeah, <laughs> I think it has. I think that's time is a bit illusory. Um, and so it's, so we practice wise speech, but we want to relate it to the intention not to harm, not to take that which is not given, and being careful with the sometimes challenging energies of sexuality and using substances which shift consciousness. We want to link wise speech to that. We also want to link it to the two factors of wisdom that are mentioned. The, Oops, you know what? Oops, forgot to press the, I forgot to press this. Well, we have a good one here. Okay, sorry. Oops. <laughs> All the preparation for the talk and good wisdom, but not so much mindfulness. <laughs> okay. But we have two recorders, so we're okay. So the two, the two factors for wisdom are first what's called right understanding, and the second is right intention. Right understanding is especially understood in terms of the four truths, which Richard will 
I believe, explore more tomorrow night, which is about really the what causes suffering and what causes freedom. What makes possible freedom? What are the causal factors which lead to suffering? And the basic answer is that suffering is very widespread and the deep cause of suffering is a kind of compulsive resistance to what is, a kind of compulsive grabbing hold to kind of preserve what we think is positive or a compulsive pushing away of what we think is negative. And we'll, we'll explore that more. But that um, wise speech has to be understood in terms of under, the understanding of what leads to freedom, what leads to suffering. Right intention is also very crucial because as we'll see, particularly tomorrow, it's the continual reminder of what is important to us, what we want to do that makes wise speech come alive in daily life. You know, for, for me, for example, it's very, very important to keep on remembering to intend to speak wisely. We can go to a wonderful one-week retreat, and if we don't set in motion the intention to speak wisely, it's kind of like a scrapbook. A little harsh, maybe, but, but I think you know what I mean. And so we have to continually make our practice alive, continually uh, remember. You know, so, for example, something that I do is I often when I'm at a meeting, I have guidelines for wise speech on a piece of paper right in front of me so I can remember to remember. The hardest thing about our meditation practice, our skillful speech, is not actually doing it, but it's remembering to do it in the midst of the distracted lives that are kind of normal in this society. Maybe all societies have been distracted, I don't know. But I don't think so, not as much as ours. And they're good, they're wonderful, beautiful qualities of our society as well, but I'm, distraction is strong. And so then the, the qualities of meditation that have to be linked in the long run with wise speech include uh, right mindfulness, right concentration, and right effort, which is really linked with intention. It's that continual effort to be aware, to be skillful in speech, that continual effort just to bring our practice alive in the moment. Having just done that a lot today, you know it takes effort. You know, the mind can get really out there or just be floating around a hot day. It takes effort just to come back to the present. That's what right effort is about, just continually coming back to the present. So a few words about um, wise speech or right speech. In the text, it's usually translated as right speech. I think right is a wrong translation, <laughs> so to speak, uh, because it, I think it's a Victorian era translation. Uh, it has, to me, when I hear right speech, it sounds kind of like I don't know, PC or something, or a little bit dogmatic, 
I don't know if it has that flavor for you, but maybe you like the phrase right speech. I don't know, but I don't like it so much. And I think, but actually, when you look to the words, the word in the Pali language is sama, which is, I think, better translated as something like mature, mature speech, or um, kind of uh, completed speech, or something. It, it really suggests the mature point of a developmental path. It's related in English, the languages that the Buddha used and that were used in the texts are Indo-European languages. So some of the roots in European languages are quite similar. So for example, the word sama is related to words like summary, summation, or Thomas Aquinas, sama theologica which means the kind of the summation or the end point or the mature development. And that's really, I think, what is referred to when we talk about wise speech. So it's helpful to remember that because we can get hung up. The translations of a lot of the Buddhist terms are quite problematic. And it's helpful to remember that. So if you get really um, upset about a word, know that it might be a bad translation. It's, a good, it's good to remember. So wise speech is this uh, beautiful practice that is uh, about both our speaking, it's about our listening. I think it's also about the speaking that we do to ourselves. There's wise speech to ourselves. So it takes all these different dimensions. And it's this really crucial area in our lives, and for a few reasons. One of them is, is that we know that speech that is not skillful can cause all sorts of problems. We know that we can, maybe with certain people, say one or two words and we have a fight on our hands. And you probably know certain people which words those are. And they may be members of your own family, <laughs> right? And they're, you know, politically we know that that countries, through their representatives, can say things to each other which can lead to wars. A few words can lead to wars. There's a very uh, sad but fairly intense story that I got from the uh, newspaper about this way that a few words can lead to really horrible events. This is the headline. Cyber feud erupts into real life blaze. Here's the story. A Navy man who got mad when someone mocked him as a nerd over the internet drove 1,300 miles from Virginia to Texas to teach the other guy a lesson. As he made his way towards Texas, Fire Controlman Second Class Petty Officer Russell Tavares posted photos online showing the welcome signs at several states' borders as if to prove his internet to his internet friends that he met business. When, the, when he finally arrived, Tavares burned the guy's trailer down. The feud started when Anderson, whose trailer was burned down, who runs a haunted house near Waco, <laughs> you can look at this later, I'm not making anything up. <laughs> Anderson, who runs a haunted house near Waco, 
joined a picture-sharing website and posted his artwork and political views. After he blocked some people from his page because of insults and foul language, they retaliated by making obscene, digitally altered photos of him. He said, Anderson, who went by the screen name Johnny Darkness, yeah. traded barbs with Tavares, AKA Pyro Dice. Investigators say Tavares boiled over when Anderson called him a nerd and posted a digitally altered photo making Tavares look like a skinny boy in high water pants, holding a gun and a laptop under a Revenge of the Nerds sign. That will be my major contact with the news <laughs> for the duration of the talk. But so just that, just a few words, and he traveled 1,300 miles, burned down the guy's trailer, and basically probably got himself in prison for a number of years, and really a lot of, a lot of damage. But we also know that words can be incredibly healing. We know that when we're in difficult, let's say, emotional places, a friend's one or two words, or even just listening without words, can be incredibly healing that words have this, this power, that skillful speech can open us up to love and care and understanding. Interestingly, we might think that enlightenment in the Buddhist context occurred mostly when people were meditating. It's actually not true. Most of the people who got enlightened did so hearing Dharma talks. So we have about half an hour left for this one. <laughs> can see what happens. But it's actually true. They, they were enlightened by hearing words. You know, and I love a phrase that I learned from a Jewish mystic named Abraham Joshua Heschel, who spoke about holiness in words, the aspiration to manifest holiness in words. And for myself, the practice started to get alive, I think about 30 years ago. I, had, I was uh, a few years into starting practice, and I had a close friend, and she was pretty frank with me. And she told me one day, uh, I think I was called Donnie at that point. <laughs> she said, Donnie, you don't, really, you don't really use wise speech very much. And I said, hmm. You know, but when I reflected on it, I thought that she was really pointing to something that was true, which is that my speech was more automatic. And it really started a process of looking more carefully at my speech. And the wondrous thing is, as I mentioned last night, that when we take speech as our practice, we suddenly have a large amount of practice time that speech is this incredibly important practice for people in the world, for people with families, with people with jobs, because we can really bring this practice to such a large part of our lives. And so it's really, really crucial. And again, many of us think that our practice is just a half hour a day on the cushion. When we use wise speech, it becomes the majority of our time. And so it can be profoundly transformative if our wise speech practice comes alive.
the Buddha talked about wise speech primarily in terms of giving ethical guidelines. He gave four basic guidelines for, for speech. Let me see if I have quotations. I'll use this one. I'll bring it tomorrow. <laughs> but the, the basic uh, passage, uh, the, in the basic passage, the Buddha talks about four qualities of speech. He talks about the importance of being truthful. He talks about the importance of having one's speech be helpful and not harsh. And he talks about the importance of one's speech coming out of warmth and kindness. He also lastly talks about the speech as being very significantly dependent on good timing and appropriateness. So I want to, for the rest of the talk, outline those guidelines. And I'll read some, I'll read some quotations. The first quality is really crucial. It's the quality of being truthful that is said to actually be perhaps the most significant aspect of wise speech. It's really, in a way, an expression outwardly of the clarity of the mind. It's the outer aspect, we might say, of wisdom and clear seeing when we're truthful. It's sometimes said that the bodhisattva, the one who is dedicated to helping others, can in certain moments break any of the ethical precepts except for that of telling a lie, of not telling a lie. In other words, that the guideline of truthfulness is right at the center of things. And so when we look at that guideline for our own practice, it helps us with our mindfulness because we, as it were, take that guideline of truthfulness as a spotlight and we look at our speech. And we look at the different ways that we might not be entirely truthful. Some, for some of us, there may be overt lies at times. Probably for many of us, or most of us, there are not so many of those that we may not actually tell a blatant untruth. And, and when we're practicing wise speech, if we do, it comes as a kind of shock, because what this practice does is it really develops us to be sensitive to these guidelines. And so we might more especially look at qualities like, do I exaggerate? Do I exaggerate things for my own self-image? I remember when I was growing up, 
I thought that my feet were too big as a teenager. Mostly as a teenager, most of us think that some body part is significantly flawed. Does that, does that resonate with you? <laughs> At least one. <laughs> maybe, maybe multiple body parts or aspects of our body. I thought my, you know, I, for me, I thought it was my feet and my ears were the big problem as a teenager. And so when people would ask me my shoe size, I always brought it a little low. <laughs> And I notice, even though the issues are really not there, this is, you know, a number of years later, I still notice some residues, you know, when I put a, get a new pair of shoes and, will these make my feet look big? You know, it's really not a significant charged issue, you know. And if it was, I could take advantage of California psychotherapists to work, work through it. But, but it still is there, and we exaggerate in different ways. You know, we exaggerate downwardly in case of shoes or upwardly, maybe we think our feet are too small, or we exaggerate to create a self-image. We talk about what we've done in a way that's not entirely true, but is not a clear, blatant lie. There's something in our minds which says it's okay. So part of what we do when we look at wise speech is we look at those aspects of speech. We look at the ways that we exaggerate, or we look at the way that we tell half-truths, or we look at the way that we omit some significant part of the truth. And so as we take on these guidelines, and I'll give a handout tomorrow that has all of this on the handout and actually has a number of quotations, including the one that I forgot to bring. <laughs> so uh, going deeper, that quality of truthfulness may have to do with the question, am I really truthful about what's important to me? We can be untruthful to ourselves. We can deceive ourselves about different parts of our lives. And I think being truthful comes under that as well. And there's a way in which each of these ethical guidelines, truthfulness and helpfulness and warmth or kindness or loving speech and, and fourthly, good timing, they actually can not just be qualities of a person, a person's behavior, they also can be the qualities of a community or an organization or even a society. You know? And we can ask questions, how does my family or how does my organization practice wise speech? Does my organization practice truthfulness? Does my government practice truthfulness? <laughs> I want to tell you a little story about the government and truthfulness. You probably know a hundred stories about the government and truthfulness, but I'll tell you one. Um, this is something I found in a newspaper a few years ago. There was a woman named Jennifer Harbury who had a husband who had died who lived, who was Guatemalan. Jennifer Harbury was a human rights activist, uh, I think with a law degree from, from Harvard, and she fell in love with a man named uh, Ephraim Baca, who was with the uh, resistance in Guatemala. And he was eventually uh, killed by the Guatemalan military in conjunction with the CIA in 1992. Some years later, 
she developed a lawsuit because she had been, she claimed, lied to by the government. And she based her, law her, uh, her um, lawsuit on the idea that she should be able to expect truth from the government. Speaking against her, I think this was went all the way to the Supreme Court, if I, if I remember right. Speaking against her was the US Solicitor General, Theodore Olson, who warned the court, this is a quote, to use utmost caution before interpreting the Constitution as guaranteeing citizens a truthful response. The government won, she lost. And so I think it's helpful when we think of wise speech to think of it as extending from personal behavior to our organizations and communities, even to the society. So truthfulness at the level of society might be, mean getting accurate public information or getting information disclosed in a truthful way. It might mean transparency of decision making or a kind of clarity and openness of public discussion. And so I think I'd like to suggest when we consider wise speech that we consider it quite broadly, even if our major focus might be on our own personal action and our own consciousness. Very interestingly, the, the Buddha didn't stop with truthfulness. He said there are actually several guidelines for wise speech and the second is helpfulness for uh, avoiding uh, speech which is harmful or vindictive and so forth. And it's very interesting that truthfulness by itself is not enough. In fact, we can be truthful with bad motives. Do you know that one? We can be truthful as a way to hurt another person. We sometimes call that dumping. You know, in a discussion with someone, we can be quite angry and speak what is completely true, but our motive is actually to hurt. And so I think it's quite beautiful and subtle that the Buddha wanted to connect wise speech also to this urge to be helpful and not to, not to uh, hurt others, to watch out for speech <clears throat> which is hurtful or malicious. And again, like the guideline of truthfulness, when we take this as a guideline for our speech practice, this, this invites us to be mindful in all sorts of ways. We can, when we are more cognizant of the guideline of helpfulness, we can ask, was I trying to be helpful? Was I trying to, or was I in fact, uh, speaking maliciously or in a negative way. And we can ask that. Part of the, what's really great about these guidelines is that we can actually see where we're weak or strong. I found, I, I once in a three month period worked with a small group and we looked, we worked with wise speech for three months. And in my own work with it, I would do all sorts of things like I would put these four guidelines, truthfulness, helpfulness, warmth or kindness, and good timing, right by my telephone. The phone would ring, 
I'd look at the sheet, truthful, helpful, kind, good timing, hello. <laughs> and it made a huge difference. It was really like just inviting, bringing those to awareness. I could also see, I think for myself, especially when I got busy, I was almost always uh, truthful. But I wasn't always completely helpful or warm at times. I could see where, which of these I was better at, which of these I was worst at, worse at. The third guideline is bringing warmth or a good heart, we might say, to our speech. And ultimately, the suggestion is that we want to develop all of these guidelines. We want to have all of these qualities of speech there for our mature sense of wise speech. This is from the Buddha. One avoids harsh language and abstains from it. One speaks such words as are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving, such words as go to the heart, are courteous, friendly, and agreeable to many. The sense of watching out for speech which is harsh, which is abusive, which comes from a closed heart, which may come from a state of our mind that might be caught in fear or anger. And we actually want to be very careful when we notice ourselves in reactive thought patterns. A number of the teachers about speech say it's very helpful when you notice yourself caught in reactivity, caught in, let's say, reactive anger or fear, to actually abstain from speech and just take a time out to really work with wise speech in that way because it's very likely that that quality of warmth may not come. So again, when we take this as a guideline, it lets us really ask that question, where is my heart right now? And we'll look at this in more depth in the next few days. We can ask, where is my heart? Am I speaking from my heart? Am I speaking and acting from my heart? I think of uh, uh, what I learned once from Julia Butterfly Hill. Some of you know her, the woman who sat in Luna, the great redwood tree for two years. Mm -hmm. And she said, let all my actions and speech come out of love. Very, very simple. What would it mean if that was the case for each of us? This is really what's being invited. So you can see how it's not just a matter of using techniques or principles, but that truly developing a mature sense of speech is to keep that transformative process going that, that develops the heart towards love, that really helps us to move in that direction. It's also to see when we're not expressing loving speech, what's the reason? What's there? What's in my heart? What's happening for myself? So we can use these guidelines as these invitations to mindfulness to really look carefully to keep on noticing, to keep on noticing what's there. And this power of loving speech, I think, as I mentioned before, it's so amazing. You know, that just a few words that come out of a loving heart can change people's lives, can really uh, change how we are in the moment, and can really influence people. They, you know, when I was, uh, uh, working on 
a talk on wise speech. This was um, a few years ago when I was when I was developing material for a book which I published about a year and a half ago on connecting inner work with social service and social change. I was working on wise speech and I talked to my mom, to my mother, and and asked her about wise speech. And I told her about these guidelines and she thought they were good. <laughs> you know. And then I, I, I looked at this guideline of um, kind and loving speech and she said, oh, you know, I remember. She went, she remembered, this was something that happened like 10 or 11 years before we spoke. It was like a minute and a half of loving speech that, that went right to her memory right at that moment. It was so powerful. It was a man named Robert Lifton. I don't know if anyone knows his name. He was actually a teacher of mine in college. And he is a uh, psychiatrist who's written a number of books, really. Uh, he was the person who studied the after effects of uh, uh, Hiroshima. And he coined the phrase psychic numbing. And he's been a, a human rights activist for a long time done a lot of uh, wonderful, important work. And he was giving a talk one evening that my mother went to. And in the question and answer period, someone asked a question and a collective groan settled over the audience as if this person, this it was a woman, as if she hadn't heard anything in the talk. And everyone was waiting for Robert Lifton to tell this person, that's not at all what I meant. You got it wrong. And instead, he spoke with a lot of kindness. He said, oh, that's a really interesting question. I can really see how you would go there. And he met her in a way which involved no put down and kind of brought her around to what he was saying in a way which was incredibly gentle, loving, and really held her in a certain way. And it lasted for a minute and it had a credible impact on my mother's mind, so much so that instantly when we talked about wise speech, this came, this came to her mind. Yeah, and I think you may remember if we look in our own memory for times when people have been really warm and loving in their speech, we probably, something probably comes right there because it has a huge impact on us. The last quality of uh, wise speech is having good timing. The Buddha went around all the time telling people to have good timing. It's true. And in particular, this last aspect also includes qualities of being careful about, about distracted speech. So it really is about the appropriateness of speech. Maybe that's a better general category that we have to also ask whether our speech is appropriate. You know, and we have to ask, am I just caught in distracted speech? And if we are, we can question whether that's wise speech. One teacher of mine, Joseph Goldstein, once did an experiment related to this last quality. He said, for one week, I will not speak about anyone who is not present in the situation. I will, only, I will only speak directly and I will not speak about a third person. He said 90% of his speech dropped away immediately. 
And it was really kind of a training in what's appropriate speech, what's, what is uh, important for me to, to use. Is this speech really necessary? Because we get very much involved kind of with endless speech that's kind of mindless, like we're just chattering. Do you know that? <coughs> Does anyone here chatter at times? <laughs> and so this last guideline is really an invitation to look at, look at that. The Buddha was particularly concerned about that kind of mindless chattering because it could really very easily lead to negative speech. It could lead to that kind of putting down of other people or uh, being harsh or spreading rumors or doing all sorts of things like that. And so the Buddha wasn't, you know, he wasn't someone who said, only speak when you have a clear purpose. But he did, he did really invite people to reflect on the intention for speech. Why am I speaking? What's the purpose? To really have a little more clarity about our speech and why we're doing it and not be quite so much an automatic pilot. And so when we take these four principles, we can really ask of these four, truthfulness and helpfulness and kind or warm speech and appropriateness or good timing, which is the hardest for me? What's most challenging for me? What am I best at? Be truthful. <laughs> what am I best at? Let me look at that. And as we develop that, this is really kind of the doorway for working with speech these ethical guidelines. As we proceed in the days, we'll look at other dimensions of speech. We'll look some tomorrow at working with mindfulness in speech. How can I have that sense of inner and outer at the same time? We'll look at how I can work with speech in the midst of difficulties, when I have difficult emotions, or I have con when there are conflicts, or when there are difficult things coming at me. How do I speak when people are criticizing me? How do I speak when, with, my, with the conflicts that are in my life? Can I use wise speech there? Or does wise speech go out the window whenever there's any difficulty? You know? And so we'll be looking at that, but these guidelines are really the doorway. They're really the framework. It's really that asking of ourselves, is my speech truthful? Is it helpful? Does it come out of a good heart? And is it appropriate? Is there a good timing? What's my intention, really? And as we work with this and some of the other dimensions of speech, I think we come to grow more and more in our ability to have our speech really start to be an expression of our awakened quality. It's interesting that here at Spirit Rock, we have so many, uh, so many silent retreats. We don't have a whole lot of emphasis on speech. We often think that the deepest insights come out of silence. And there's, a lot, as I mentioned, a lot of truth to that, even though enormous number of deep insights come out of hearing something and actually having some kind of realization from listening. But there's maybe a way in which we, in which we have a can access a kind of inner silence in our meditation that really isn't so much about whether we're speaking or not, but it's the silence that reflects whether there's reactivity. It's really the silence about uh, 
there being no reactions, no grabbing hold of something we like, no compulsively pushing away what we don't like. There's a kind of silence there that really is the deep silence of freedom. It's really the, the absence of that reactive inner speech, we might say. And it's that kind of inner, we might say, inner silence that wise speech comes out of. So I'd like to, I'd like to say that the deepest and most mature speech comes out of an inner silence. It's paradoxical in that way. It invites us to really see where our minds and our inner speech are kind of out of control and to work with that and to come to that place where there can be this deep peace and resting that grows in us that can be the source more and more of our speech in the world. And when that occurs, we can, our speech can be not only an expression more and more of our own awakening, but it can also have the power to help awaken others. And that really is, I think, the horizon of our practice of speech, our deeper intention. So I'll stop there and invite just a moment of sitting quietly and then we can take a few questions or, dis or discussion points. actually might be the discourse in, at work or wherever that there, maybe from a positive angle, we could ask what would a culture be like that really valued truthful speech or that really, uh, that really invited um, caring and harmonious speech rather than speech which aims to hurt or denigrate someone else. And I think we yearn for that, don't we? I mean, I think part of the laughter in relation to the politics is I think we yearn 
to be in a culture which is based on wise speech. And, yeah. Well, who's the we, you know? What? Who's the we? I know about the we in here. Oh, that's, I'm imagining just us yeah. here, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But we can make a difference, actually. Something that I'll give a handout tomorrow. I think I'll give it tomorrow, which has some guidelines which can be used for wise speech in organizations. You know, because we can take these guidelines and find expressions for them at the level of an organization or a community or a group. And it's and that spreads, you know. I've been I'll just tell one small story. Um, I've been for a number of years teaching about half time at a graduate school and for a period of time uh, the communications sometimes weren't very good. And, I, and we set up a communications committee that suggested guidelines, and I was on that committee. And people really loved these four guidelines for wise speech, and the committee unanimously accepted all of them, so that when we have faculty meetings now, we write the four guidelines for wise speech on a marker paper, and everyone, everyone loves them, and they go by them. And people apologize sometimes. They, I'm not sure whether I'm going by that guideline. <laughs> but they're actually, in doing so, they're really invoking them. So I think it's actually, we, we can actually be positive about this. But I think that in time, it may reach the highest level. But it can certainly reach levels uh, of organizations if they're like-minded people and so forth. It's really pretty cool you know, to, to have helped with this and see, you know, I'm not even doing it. People okay, let's write those guidelines, we write the guidelines on, on a, you know, a poster paper and, and put it up so everyone can see it, and that's the main guidance that we have for a meeting. That's interesting. Yeah. Please, yeah. You made a very significant point at the end when you talked about speaking from inner silence. Yeah. And I guess my question to you is, exactly what do you mean by inner silence? It seems to me that it's a place that sort of transcends our ego and our I yeah. and comes from a truth yeah. within us. So can you just elaborate a little bit more? Because that, that's a, to me, it seems like a real essence of how we communicate. Yeah, and it, I was really kind of planting that as a seed to be explored further in the retreat as well. But So I'll say a little bit now. But it's really, I was expressing it in terms of this um, quality of non-reactivity is really the mind when it's at rest, when it's neither grabbing for something or pushing something away. When we sit with the knee pain or someone saying something, and, and even saying something nasty, and I'm not reacting. That when I'm in that place, I much more likely can speak out of wisdom, can speak out of um, awareness and compassion. It's that kind of, uh, really the roots of wisdom and the roots of compassion are in that non-reactivity. And that's really, really links wise speech to the core of our mindfulness practice, which is really to notice where there's reactivity and over time look at it and transform it. Reactivity meaning, again, when I'm caught in reactive patterns, which are almost automatic. It might be to be judgmental, 
towards myself. It might be a pattern involving anger. It might be a pattern involving desire. I want this. Do you know what I mean by that? By reactivity and non-reactivity? Do I need to say more on that? But you know, yeah. And so when we can speak out of that, it's really speaking out of a place of relative peace and equanimity. And I think in that place we have access to wisdom and compassion. It's really in that place, it's really um, expressing, you might say, the natural state of the mind and the heart, which is that of being at rest and being, being clear and, ha and being, being open in a way. And so it's the, uh, the speech which can come out of that state of peace is going to actually have the, uh, in some sense, the most powerful effect. And so that inner silence doesn't at all mean that we're not busy or involved. It just means that there's a quality of non-reactivity. You know, and I, can, I also can be quite firm. I can be with a child, let's say. And I can be non-reactive, but saying this is really important for you to, to get, right? I can be firm. I can be this, this uh, sense of warm speech and kind speech doesn't at all mean being a pushover. That's an important point. I sometimes teach, uh, when we teach loving kindness, I sometimes like to talk about uh, the, the Pali word for loving kindness is metta. I like to talk about tough metta, you know, like tough love. <laughs> so, that we can actually be firm. And maybe, maybe one more, and then I think we'll move to. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering. Uh, how uh, why speech uh, adjusts by changes by culture, and what maybe is wise in amongst a certain culture, whether that's you know a culture of a country or a culture of, a, yeah. of the receiver, you know, because it seems to me you mentioned like a family member who can be thrown off very quickly by certain words, yeah. Yeah. and you know when you're not privy to knowing what goes on in the other's mind or what they're with their, how they were raised, or how, um, how they integrate their information. Yeah. How can you, how much we can take responsibility for the how, what you say is received by others. Yeah, now are you thinking about a specific situation? Well, I just, I think of, um, you know, how we communicate differently to people with your Buddhist background or upbringing, yeah. and like thinking sort of an authentic way I would speak about how, how authentic I would speak to others about what my motivations were. Yeah. Or it might be dismissed if it came from you know, yeah, yeah. other things. Yeah, so that's a big question. Your, your name is? Ari. Ari? Yeah. Yeah, that's a big one, and I'll just give a really brief answer. It's a very huge question, but I think it, um, yeah, I mean, there are certain, the Buddha talked about being truthful, and I think, I think for many of us, we hear these terms, and they actually have, they may have close to a kind of universal meaning, or they can resonate with us, but I think it also means different things in different cultures. I know, uh, for example, spending time in Thailand, that um, truthfulness has certain contexts in which, it, in which it's uh, acceptable, and certain contexts in which it's not. You know, that people would, well, I remember from experiences there and being at a, a gathering where um, 
Uh, I was at a week-long gathering on what's called socially engaged Buddhism. And it was about two-thirds people from Asia and about one-third Westerners. And the organizers, who were mostly Thai, had been influenced some by the West. And they got into asking people at the end of the, um, the week, the week gathering, we'd like each of you to say one thing that you liked and one thing that you didn't like. Now, this was socially not appropriate in the Thai context. Uh, it was not so, on my understanding, it was not so appropriate for people felt awkward in mentioning something that they didn't like publicly like that, even though it's truthful. And so I think that would be an example. And what actually happened was I think my poor Thai friends were kind of bringing California values to Thailand. <laughs> and because what actually happened was people were very shy at first and they started mentioning particularly about something they didn't like and mostly it was the food. You know? And they mentioned, and one of them would mention the food and it was could tell it was really shy and probably socially awkward. But after a while, the, um, the ice was broken. And after the first few, they really got into it. <laughs> <laughs> and we're speaking uh, with a lot, of, a lot of energy about the food. <laughs> we had vegetarian food and that was, some people didn't like that. But I think that's just an example that comes to mind that I think, you know, like speaking truthfully, even in our, even in our culture, there's certain contexts, you know, uh, and I guess very, a lot of differences in subcultures. You know, in our culture, until recently, it was socially inappropriate to speak about death, right? to be truthful about death, or in a lot of contexts, it's not appropriate to speak truthful about an illness, and so forth, right? So that's, those are some things that come to mind. So it is complex, but then there probably are places where it's very important to be truthful. So my guess is that these guidelines are somewhat universal, but they get interpreted different ways. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Yeah. And that we ne would need, in a given context, to be sensitive to what that, um, what that interpretation would be. You know, I can be truthful, but if I'm speaking to someone for whom that area of, uh, is not usually talked about truthfully, I should, would want to be sensitive to that. So thank you for that. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a nuanced kind of area, isn't it? Quite, uh, quite complex. Well, thank you. And we can continue with this. So what I'll invite us to do is uh, we'll go back into silence now and we'll have uh, about 25 minutes of walking and then we'll come back for a sitting and we're going to begin another form of wise speech at the end of the next sitting which is called chanting. That was a joke. <laughs> You're supposed to laugh. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, do some, we'll do some chanting about the last 10 minutes. And I think it actually is very, it is a form almost of sacred speech to work with chanting. So we'll do some of that. And then uh, tomorrow we'll have the same schedule as today. And we'll come together, you know, we'll meet at 6.30 here, then we'll come at 9, have a sitting. 
And then starting tomorrow morning at 9.30, we'll start doing more interactive work. So we'll have a chance, really, to bring what we've explored tonight into practice and to, uh, to work with it quite practically and start to bring that into those guidelines into all of our speech. So we'll have, this was sort of setting a framework, but we'll have a chance now to put it into practice over the next five and a half days. So thank you for your kind attention, and we'll see you back at nine o'clock. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.